This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. Welcome to the Informer Daily. I'm your host, Dina Curie. Yeah, so awareness is like the easy thing. All the people of color, we've been aware of the privilege that white people have for a long time. So white people start to get aware and they're like, oh my God, give me 10 medals. And you're like, mm, you're late. Like, happy you're there. Good to be there. Uh, but when you become aware, the goal is to then dismantle it. So how do we make sure that, especially because white people structurally just have so much power, how do we make sure that white people can actually uh, set themselves up so that they work to dismantle the privileges from the inside? As it's a long weekend, today on the show, we're going to look back at one of our past interviews with civil rights activist, writer, and podcast host, DeRay McKesson, who talks to the Informer's executive producer, Arian Potts, and Nikanar Kamenar-Sandhya about police violence, how to have hope in hard times, white privilege, and his book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. In your book, one of the things you talk about is uh, allies versus accomplices. And that kind of comes back into white privilege. So can we start with what white privilege is? Yeah, so when we talk about white privilege, it is the acknowledgement that white people benefit from uh, the ideology of white supremacy that white people benefit structurally from uh, what whiteness has done to exploit black and brown people across the the world the globe uh, so when we say white privilege it is an acknowledgement of those privileges what does it mean that we live in a world where white is considered normal what does it mean that we live in a world where uh, when people think about nude the color nude it is not my skin it is white skin like that is that is the normalization of whiteness band-aids um, band-aids yep and privilege white privilege is just naming those things and so when someone becomes aware that they have all this privilege, um, you talk about in your book that just being aware of it isn't necessarily enough that you need to then take actions if you really want to achieve change. Yeah, so awareness is like the easy thing. All the people of color, we've been aware of the privilege that white people have for a long time. So white people start to get aware and they're like, oh my God, give me 10 medals. And you're like, mm, you're late. Like, happy you're there. Good to be there. Uh, but when you become aware, the goal is to then dismantle it. So how do we make sure that, especially because white people structurally just have so much power, how do we make sure that white people can actually uh, set themselves up so that they work to dismantle the privileges from the inside, to redistribute resources, to like fight for issues that don't directly impact them, but impact the communities that mm-hmm. they care about and that they are part of? That, that has to be a part of the work. I write in the book this idea that it becomes like a circle of self-congratulation, that people sort of have this awareness, and then they'll like pat me on the back, give me an award and that becomes all of the work and it's like no the awareness is actually the beginning of the work Uh, the action is the second part of the work so what kind of work can uh, some white people who might be listening and who might want to start becoming more active, you know, do to start out and and help in their communities? Yeah, so the biggest is this idea of what does it mean to fight for things that don't personally impact you, but you know are not right, right, or not on the right side of justice. So you think about a country like this that incarcerates more indigenous people than any country in the world. You think about what has happened to the First Nations uh, populations here, is that there are a lot of white people who will never be impacted by those decisions, who won't come in 
in proximity to those communities who like incarceration is sort of an interesting ideology, like an interesting intellectual sort of thing, but not something they feel. And it is those people who, when they pick up the banner and they're like, this isn't right. Like, we should start talking about this stuff. Like, it matters so much more. People expect me to talk about the police. People expect First Nations people to talk about the injustices of land stealing and stuff like that. They don't expect white people to do it. So white people do do it with the privilege that they have structurally. It really changes the game. You also talk about how people can be allies, but you don't think that really goes far enough. But you want people to be accomplices. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by an accomplice versus an ally? He's an ally loves you from a distance. They're like, hope you get free. Got you. Like, yeah, call me when you, you know, like it's one of those, like, hope you get free. Uh, (laughs) An accomplice uh, loves you up close. An accomplice is standing next to you saying, like, how can I help? What can I do? Willing to sacrifice, willing to risk. Uh, I think allyship is easy in days like this. There are people who are like, you know what? I'm going to go post that thing. And you're like, posting things? Good. It's better than not posting it, right? But an accomplice is like, what can I actually do to help you? and and I actually might uh, be a risk in the process. How do you see engaging with your opponents? We live in this world where, you know, you can get your, your own echo chamber super easily. What's an effective way of engaging people and changing minds and moving conversations forward rather than just posting opposing memes? Yeah, so a couple things. One is I push on the way we talk about echo chambers. I think that uh, to some people, they're echo chambers. To other people, they are community. When I think about echo chambers, I think about a negative connotation. What does it mean that there are communities that just recycle the same bad ideas over and over? White supremacists live in echo chambers. Racists live in echo chambers. When black people are all talking to black people, that's not an echo chamber. Like, it's community, right? So when I think about the echo chamber thing, I'm never, I'm like not swayed with that on the the left in, in terms of people who believe in a better world and fight for it, the fact that we're all talking to each other is not an echo chamber, I'd say. Especially because we, as a matter of survival, have always had to listen to the other side as a just so we don't get hurt, right? So we've had to pay attention to what the KKK said. We had to pay attention to the white supremacists. We've had to pay attention to the kids who bring guns to school, not because we care about their arguments, but to ignore it would be a danger to our own safety. So we don't have the luxury of living in a world where we only hear our own thoughts. Uh, the echo chamber thing is something that... Uh, that that that, are, that is afforded to whiteness in a way that just doesn't exist for other communities. Uh, when I think about what do we say to our opponents, you know, I'm sort of I'm of the camp that like it's not my job to convince you that I'm a whole person. So when I think about at home, I'm spending more time trying to figure out how do I bring new people into the fold on our side than I am trying to convince the other people that I'm like a worthy human being. Because the reality is, is that the white supremacists aren't interested in my argument about like the legacy of slavery or like the beauty of you know like they just. They're not interested, so I can talk myself to death, and they would actually love for me to be so distracted by trying to convince some that I, like, lose my footing. When I think about Trump, you know, I'm always reminded that more people voted against him than voted for him, right? That the numbers are actually on our side. The question for us is, can we organize them? Like, that'll be the battle for us. It's not a question of, do they exist? And so many of the swing states with the Electoral College have weird, weird problems with voting. Yeah, or the or voter suppression, right? So yep. what does it mean that the left, I mean, the, what does it mean that Republicans literally just like suppress the vote in a dramatic way? You purge a million people from state X, you purge 20,000 people from state Y, you, you, like you purge all these people. Or in Florida, you know, 1.2 million people just got the right to vote back, ex-felons, a uh, huge win. And then the state of Florida is like, you know what? They have to pay all their fines. They make up this new rule that's like everybody has to pay all their fines before they can vote. It's like that wasn't in the law that passed. You just 
Democrats are nervous about all these black people suddenly getting the right to vote because in Florida, as you know, with Bush v. Gore, it doesn't take a whole lot of votes to, to switch Florida. You can get a completely changed election in Florida with 10,000 votes. You get mm-hmm. 1.2 million people who've never gotten the right to vote. And Florida's really wild because in Florida... Uh, uh, a felony will cause you to lose your right to vote forever. And in Florida, felony death was $300. So could you imagine wow. stealing something for $300 and permanently losing your right to vote? In Florida today, uh, when you become a felon, you permanently lose the right to ever run for public office, which is also wild. Yeah. You know, should, should we be putting our uh, political energy towards convincing people who are on the fence or to mobilize people who are already on our side but maybe are not? Active. If I had to choose one of those options, I would say that uh, we want to mobilize the people who are ready and just don't know what to do. Uh, because I think that they're, I think people don't want to own that they don't want to be the first follower, but people don't want to be the first person. They don't want to be the first person to join. They don't want to be second. They want to be the fourth or fifth. They want to come when they know when they know there's already some people in the room. So the more the, the more people that we have already out there, sort of fighting, they understand that they can talk about it. That actually creates space for more people to do it. They're like, oh, I can, t-. you know. I think Think about the number of people. Have you ever made phone calls for a campaign before? It's like not the most exciting thing you've ever done, uh, but it is a necessary part of the game. Mm-hmm. And you think about like that. You think about all the things you thought about making phone calls before you did it. You're like, don't want to do this. You probably did it because a friend sort of like kept bringing your arm. But you understand that it's a part of the democratic process. It's like the more people that we have making calls, the more asks that we can make for other people to make them, right? Yeah. So if I had to choose one of those, it would be like getting people who are, who are ready but nervous, like getting them to do work. In Australia, we've had marriage equality for, what, a year and a half now or something like that? And so that was a major goal of gay rights. So we had a lot of gay men, especially, you know, double income, no kids kind of gay men with money, etc. And now that they've achieved what they saw as equality, how, where does gay rights go from this and how do we keep including those people Yeah, so we're always mindful of um, how do we think about justice beyond love, right? That I'm a whole person, whether I want to get married or not. I deserve all the protections of the law, whether I have a partner or not. Uh, I should be able to show up in the fullness of my identity, whether or not I'm having sex, right? That like so much of the way that we talk about sort of identity, so much of the way that we talk about the politics of sexuality always focuses around love. And that makes sense in some respects, because I think it's easier to organize around something like marriage. It's sort of like everybody gets it, don't need a whole lot of nuance, but people know. But when we think about what justice is, justice has to be something bigger than than only love. So when I think about what what is the rest of the work, is on making sure that trans uh, men and women like get to show up in the world and aren't harassed and beat. That there are legal protections in the workplace for all people, regardless of their sexual identity. It means that people have the health resources to make the best decisions for themselves and don't have to compromise their health in any capacity. It means that we are educating and equipping parents to to be full parents uh, as their kids like, grow into the fullness of their identities. Uh, and it means that school systems are set up to, to really like uh, help people make the best decisions for themselves that aren't rooted in things like abstinence that we know don't work. And the last thing I'd say is that the media also catches up and tells stories about our lives that are full, that aren't one-dimensional, mm. uh, that are complicated because the world is complicated. You talk about, in your book, um, about two different approaches families had at elementary schools that you went to that 
the white parents were often quite helicoptery, and whereas your own father didn't realize the sort of the power that he could have. Um, can you reflect on that? Yeah, I think that so much of it, you know, when I was growing up, my father was sort of like school is school. Teachers are experts. They know what to do. He would have never, ever, he still wouldn't. He would never walk into school and be like, maybe he would have. I mean, we don't have any. It's just me and my sister, thankfully. But I don't even know today. You know, he, my father would never walk into school and, like, demand something of uh, anybody in the school building. He might, you know, we never got in trouble. But I could imagine him coming up being like, why did you take a cell phone or something? Not that that happened. But that would be the only thing that he would feel comfortable or confident walking up. But he would never walk in and be like, my kid should be in the different math class. Or like my, he just, whereas the white parents in my school, I mean, they were like managing their kids every schedule, every class. Like they just understood their power at the system level. I wrote about it because I'm mindful that one of the ways that we change the power dynamic is that we model for people. If my father had seen other black parents do that, he would have been much more, Mm -hmm. he would have been like, oh, I can do this and I'm smart enough to do it. The second is that, you know, my sister's a principal. The second is that we also have to equip parents who don't come from communities where this is a norm. We just have to, we actually have to teach them how to do it. We have to say like, here are the range of classes here's who you talk to here. Like we actually have to do that teaching part. And the third is that it reminded me that some of the things that people feel like they earned are really the result of like intense lobbying. So I went to school with a lot of kids who were in like GT, their whole gifted and talented, their entire career in school, not because they necessarily placed into gifted and talented, but because people fought for them to be there. And what does power look like when parents know how to fight for their kids? I think that that like gets us closer to equity. This is the Informer Daily, and we'll be right back with our interview with civil rights activist, writer and podcast host, DeRay McKesson, who talks about police violence, how to have hope in hard times, white privilege, and his book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. to worry about safety in a host of a host of arenas emotional safety like mental safety physical safety and also where you can express joy so you think about the ballroom scene is a is a great example of like that works because it's a community that has said like these are the things we value this is what love looks like this is what joy looks like and it and and that space doesn't have to worry about judgment from the outside world because the outside world's not invited to it. It is, it is like its own space. And I think about that with church in some ways. Like growing up, church was black. It was like one of the blackest things culturally that we did every week. Um, and even when I wasn't focused on God, I understood the power of black people in those moments. I do think that it is, I think it's relevant when we think about conversations about identity. I think about so many spaces where I'm around gay black men and we can talk about the way the world uh, interacts with us or the way that we interact with the world in ways that we just can't do in other places. This is the Informer Daily, and we'll now continue our interview with civil rights activist, writer, and podcast host, DeRay McKesson, who talks about police violence, how to have hope in hard times, white privilege, and his book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. In your book, you talk about church as being a safe space. Even when you didn't necessarily have a lot of faith, you enjoyed being in that space. Um, and then you discuss some interesting things about how it's a place where it's just black people and they're not facing all of the shit and the oppression of the outside world. Do you think that also applies to gay-only spaces? Yeah, I think that there. I think that any marginalized identity will always need a space where it can be uh, amongst itself, right? Like where people, 
where you know, where you don't have to worry about safety, where you don't have to worry about uh, people, where you don't have to worry about safety in a host of a host of arenas, emotional safety, like mental safety, physical safety, and also where you can express joy. So you think about the ballroom scene is a, is a great example of like, that works because it's a community that has said like, these are the things we value. This is what love looks like. This is what joy looks like. And it, and, and that space doesn't have to worry about judgment from the outside world because the outside world's not invited to it. it. Is It is like its own space. And I think about that with church in some ways. Like growing up, church was black. It was like one of the blackest things culturally that we did every week. Um, and even when I wasn't focused on God, I understood the power of black people in those moments. I do think that it is, I think it's relevant when we think about conversations about identity. I think about so many spaces where I'm around gay black men and we can talk about the way the world uh, interacts with us or the way that we interact with the world in ways that we just can't do in other places. You also talk about community and that the people who seem to have like the most cynicism about having hope can sometimes become the people who have the most hope. Yeah, no, you know, it's what my father, all my, so both my parents were addicted to drugs. My father raised us. My mother left when I was three and my father has spent his life uh, helping people, uh, like recover from addiction. And one of the things that he says all the time is that people often have to hit rock bottom before they will make a change in their life. That like people will rationalize every reason why they can they can use and they'll be okay. And, and then like something, the bottom falls out. And when I think about the world, when I think about hope, I think that there are a lot of people for whom the bottom falls out. Like they are like, we're screwed. It is bad. It'll never be better. Like they get into sort of a dark place about where they see the world. They become really cynical or nihilistic. Uh, and, and it is in that space that they actually open themselves up to find some of the light. So I know a couple of friends who were like, two years ago, it was dark. I mean, it was like, we're screwed. Why do you even care? Da-da. And now those people are like some of the most joyful people I know. But they had to go through this period of, mm. of really like not believing in anything or sort of being like we're screwed and then they were in places where they saw that there was change happening and we always say right that the world we want is actually already here we've seen it we've seen it we just haven't seen it at scale we know communities that are safe without the police we know gay communities that are prospering and beautiful and and get to do they get to live in the fullness that they are we don't know that at scale but we know that they exist in pockets and part of our work is to help those pockets expand Part of your work has been around police violence. One of the most startling statistics on the Campaign Zero website is where you compare Buffalo, New York, and Orlando, Florida. They're two cities that are pretty much the same size, similar metro areas, similar demographics. And in the time period that you looked at, Buffalo had no one getting killed by police, and Orlando had 15. Why the disparities? Why is this happening? Why, why isn't there a national approach? Well, I think the why is easy because the way the federal government set up, right? Like the federalism says that local cities and states get to make their own rules. There are 18,000 police departments in the country uh, and they all essentially get to set their own policies, set their own rules. There could be, there's no, uh, there's not a world where we think that there will be national legislation that would actually make an impact in a way uh, unless it was done like the seatbelt laws, so like seatbelts and uh, the 
uh, speed on the highways and the yeah. blood alcohol level were all essentially made via funding bills. But like we can't imagine like that doesn't seem like it'll be a viable option um, for the federal government. But what the federal government can do is, you know, the biggest police departments at the federal level, it's ICE, which you've heard in the news because Trump is mobilizing ICE. Immigrations and custom enforcement. Yep. But so they arrest immigrants inside the country. Border Patrol arrests people on the border. And then the FBI is like the domestic intelligence agency. So those three agencies are the biggest police agencies that the federal government manages. But the police departments are pretty local, you know. So one of the reasons why the policies change is because regions make different decisions. Some police chiefs are more progressive, not progressive. There are a lot of laws in places that actually change the way local departments can make decisions, and we track all of those things online so that we can help people see that there are a set of laws, policies, and practices that literally do just protect the police, that that is like a part of the game. And a lot of police departments have been getting surplus equipment from the military. Is there any sort of correlation between those departments and the violence? Uh, we don't have any, there's no data that suggests there's a correlation. Uh, what is interesting is that most of those places got that equipment and have never really used it because, like, why do you need, you know, Wall- Waller County, Texas, which is where Sandra Bland was killed, uh, is tiny. Like, the, the jail is literally on, like, a dirt plot in a random neighborhood, you know, it's like a mm-hmm. tiny jail. They have like this huge Humvee thing with like a Batman insignia. And you're like, I don't, you know, I'm out there. I'm like, I don't even know where you, there's nothing happening in Waller, Waller County. Like not a single event that will require this machinery, but the police are like little kids when it comes to it. And they're just like, we need yep. that grenade launcher. And you're like, I don't think you need a grenade launcher. What's interesting about that program that, and Obama stopped it, stopped giving weapons, military weapons to police, um, is that the Bush administration was one of the biggest uh, suppliers of those kinds of weapons to local police departments, and they didn't track it. So one of the things that we pushed the Obama administration, we were like, okay, you ended it, but can you get all the bad stuff back, right? Like, can you get the grenade launchers back from, like, nobody needs a grenade launcher? Yeah. And they were like, we don't know who got it because they didn't keep records, so we have no clue. Like, we actually don't have a record of who got what, and that is also wild. You, you read about how communities often sort of are about inclusion, but they exclude people who kind of don't, like the communities come up with their own idea, uh, like their own ideal, and then they sort of exclude things that don't fit that ideal, which I think comes to sort of the gay community that, you know, um, it became very popular to have, um, uh, you know, to be fighting for marriage, but it was, you know, there's so many more broader issues around that. Like, it's not quite as acceptable to talk about family violence in terms of queer relationships and such. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I I think that, like, the larger point is this idea that part of our work as activists and organizers is not to replicate the same destructive systems that we say we're fighting against, right? So uh, if we believe that the system has to be transparent and honest and we have to have communities that are transparent and honest, right? That's one. I do think that there's like a, I think that there are some things that people feel like if we talk about these things about our community in public, then people will think so poorly about our community that we'll never get the freedoms that we want. So like the domestic violence uh, in queer communities, you think about uh, some of the things in black communities around suicide or rape, you know, there's like interesting data around suicides that black families will report it as something other than suicide, just so the stigma of suicide won't be in the family, like those sort of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we'll never get free if we like don't tell the truth, right? And there is something about there's no way that we demand freedom or demand transparency and truth from a larger system if we won't model it in our own. And, you know, you think about 
the way the history has said that we have to sacrifice some truth for the greater good. And we want to live in a world where we never sacrifice truth for the greater good, right? That like there is no way to... Uh, righteously sacrifice truth, that part of our belief is that the best story is always the true one and that we tell the true story because that's the only way that people will get free and we're mindful that the way we tell stories impacts the lessons we learn. So when we lie, people take away the wrong lesson. When we lie, there's a generation of people who say that is a learning and it's like that actually isn't even what happened in the first place. Mm. Sort of like with Texas and their school books that instead of talking about the Civil War being about the war between the states, yeah. Yes, being the war between the states. Speaking of the Civil War, Missouri was one of the, the things that led up to it with the Missouri Compromise about which states could be slave states and which weren't. It's kind of on that, that border between the South and the Midwest, and the upper Midwest. Um, what was it? What is it about St. Louis and that area that caused things to go so wrong? as far as the police and their communities. Yeah, so Missouri has, uh, St. Louis, the St. Louis region has the highest rate of police violence in the country and definitely did during the, like when the, which precipitated the protests. What makes Missouri sort of different in terms of policing is that in St. So there's St. Louis City and St. Louis County. In St. Louis County, uh, there are, a gazillion small police departments. So the Ferguson PD only has 50 police officers, but there are a lot of these tiny, tiny, imagine like if every neighborhood in Melbourne had its own police department, that is sort of what St. Louis County is like. And they all have their own jurisdiction over their own part. So it's just like a ton of police. And part of the way that they maintain themselves is that they have to ticket and fine people because they need the revenue. That's like how the police department stays funded. So that just breeds this sort of tension. And we were in the street you know, I've been, I've, I was in most of the communities in protests, and um, Saint, the St. Louis police were just so wild. It was just like an aggressive place, deeply, deeply racist. Uh, St. Louis was a sundown town, a town mm. that black people weren't safe uh, after sundown. You know, it's just like a hard place, uh, and the vestiges of that are still very present. How do you keep hope in the face of adversity? I think we'll win one day. That's like the hope is that I, uh, one of the reasons why I continue to do this work is I think we'll win. I think we'll look back in 30 years and be like, wow, that was really hard. That was nuts. I can't believe it took so long, but we did it. I don't, I don't think of myself as fighting for a win that we will get in the next generation. I think that we will get this win in this lifetime. That was our interview with civil rights activist, writer, and podcast host, DeRay McKesson, who was in Melbourne last year as we discussed his book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. This has been the Informer Daily and we'll return next week bringing you LGBTIQA plus news and current affairs around Australia and the world.
The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.